Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Broback. I'm Kemper Donovan. And we are sort of doing a Poirot this week. I say sort of because Monsieur Poirot does not really show up a lot in this book, but we will get there. What book are we covering, Kemper? We are covering The Clocks. Let me just say up front that apparently a working title for The Clocks was The Clock Stops. And I kind of like that working title because I think having the word stop in the title of this novel could only be a helpful thing while it was being written. That might give you a little little clue of my own as to how I, and I believe you as well, Catherine, feel about this novel. We're not super high on it. Not so much. Why don't we get started and talk about the publication history of The Clocks? It was published in November 1963 by Collins Crime in the UK and by Dodd Mead in the US in 1964. In terms of serializations, it was first serialized in the UK weekly magazine Woman's Own in six abridged installments in late 1963, just after it first appeared in book form, actually. And then in the U.S., a condensed version of the novel appeared first in January of 1964 in an issue of Cosmopolitan. I really don't have any fun facts about this either. It's interesting. This book does not get a whole lot of mentions either in the two (laughs) biographies. Do you think there's a reason for that? There's perhaps a little reason for that. In fact, I think it it may be the first Christie novel that I came across in Laura Thompson's biography that is not mentioned at all because she really does manage to reference or weave in some sort of clever allusion to every Christie and Westmacott novel in existence. But yes, perhaps uh, its absence from the biography is telling. We shall see. Let's just move swiftly along to our victims. Uh, First up, our main victim of the novel is a man who does Mm -hmm. not have a name. His name is very much a mystery for almost the entire novel. And he is found stabbed. Until the last page of the novel. (laughs) Until about the last page, indeed. Yeah. And he is found stabbed to death in the parlor of a townhouse at 19 Wilbraham Crescent. Right. And we have Edna Brent, who's a typist, and she's strangled by her own scarf in a phone booth. And our third and final victim is Merlina Rival. We will explain who she is and how she figures into things. She is, like our first victim, found stabbed uh, in the tube, actually. More to come on that front. So our suspects, we have Miss Sheila Webb, who found the body. She's a typist called to the house originally. Then we have Miss Martindale, who runs the typist agency that Sheila Webb works at. And then we have the owner of that house where that body is found, and that would be Miss Pebmar. She's a blind schoolmistress who owns 19 Wilbraham Crescent. And then we just have a whole bunch of neighbors in and around Wilbraham Crescent, and we're going to list them in quick succession, much quicker than we normally do, because to be totally honest, they blend together even when you're reading the book. It's actually really hard 
to keep them apart. It's confusing and not in a good way. <laughs> confusing as opposed to intriguing. So, you know, we'll get to who and what is significant in our summary, but let's just reel them off in rapid fire succession here, Catherine. First up, we have Mrs. Hemming. Cat lady. Then we have the Waterhouses, brother and sister who live together. Because that's not weird. No, then, not at all. Then there's Mrs. Ramsey. To be clear, this is not to the lighthouse. I know. I was about every time to I read that. Every time I thought the same thing come for I mean, to the lighthouse is one of my desert island books. And so me, every single time I just read Mrs. Ramsey. I know you well enough that as it was happening to me, I knew. I didn't even have to ask you. I knew that it was <laughs> happening to you as well. And then what's great could because I guess we should list them technically as suspects, is that she has two sons who live with her who are named, oh yes, Bill and Ted. Excellent! All right, who is our next neighbor, Catherine? Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bland. The name says it it all. I know, and it really could be the name for all of the neighbors, frankly. It really could. And then finally, we have Mr. and Mrs. McNaughton. So we will talk more about those neighbors, each of whom is interviewed, perhaps a little too long, (laughs) in the middle of this book, uh, when we get to it in the world as it appears to be. Take it away, Catherine. Sheila Webb is given an assignment by her employer, Miss Martindale, um, at the typist agency, where she's been specifically requested by Miss Pebbarsh, who, as far as Sheila knows, she's never worked for. So a little weird, right? And when she arrives at the house, she's been directed that maybe Miss Pebbarsh will be out, so she should just wait in the parlor slash sitting room. So she walks right into this sitting room, and it seems like a totally nice, normal room. The only thing that seems remarkable about it is, and I'm quoting now from the book, the profusion of clocks. A grandfather clock ticking in the corner, a Dresden china clock on the mantelpiece, a silver carriage clock on the desk, a small fancy gilt clock on a whatnot near the fireplace, and on a table by the window, a faded leather traveling clock with rosemary in worn gilt letters across the corner. What's also odd is that Sheila's appointment with Miss Pebmarsh was for three o'clock, but all these clocks read 10 minutes past four. And then things get even more clockful because... As Christy writes, there was a word, a click above her head, and from a wooden carved clock on the wall, a cuckoo sprang out through his little door and announced loudly and definitely, cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. So this cuckoo clock on the wall is reading the correct time, i.e. three o'clock. And then she sees a dead body. She finds a body of a man who has been stabbed to death. Just as Miss Pebmarsh comes in, and Miss Pebmarsh is blind. It is an intriguing opening. You know, you're like, what is happening here with this body? And there are clocks that are surrounding it. The clocks are set to the wrong time. Why was this Sheila brought to this house? She doesn't know. It's all very intriguing. So Sheila runs screaming into the street, totally understandable given the circumstances, where she just meet-cutes the heck out of Colin (laughs) Lamb, who is sauntering down the crescent at that moment. And he settles down Sheila. He rings the police. He goes inside himself. And Colin is going to be one of our detectives here because it turns out that he is MI5 slash 6, MI5 and a half, let's say. And uh, he's on the crescent for a reason not, himself. Not quite James Bond, but he's a marine biologist, Kemper. He is indeed a marine biologist. And we will get to what he is investigating 
on the Crescent as well, which unfortunately preoccupies a significant portion of the story. <laughs> yep, it does. He's looking for 61 Wilbraham Crescent, which doesn't seem to exist because apparently Colin Lamb can't ask for directions because the Crescent um, numbers itself around the Crescent. The numbers circle the Crescent rather than just line up. Right, like it's not a it's not a straight line. The houses back onto each other. So Correct. There are literally two different rows of houses that are both Wilbraham Crescent. And also um it never occurs to him to turn the piece of paper he has upside down because he's found a scrap of paper and it has an M on it and a crescent and the number 61 and he found it in a murdered spy's pocket. Yeah, I mean, the paper is reproduced in the book. And, you know, when Colin is explaining via first-person narration, he narrates about half of the book. This is another one of those uh, books that flips back and forth between an omniscient third-person narr- narrator and a first-person narrator, which mm-hmm. Christie seems to have been doing a little bit more of in her later career, actually, because we had that in The Pale Horse as well. We do. And... And I found it awkward there. And I honestly find it even more awkward here in this book. But it's so obvious when we're presented with this piece of paper, which he says, well, there's a crescent on it and the number 61 and then an M. But I've looked at all the other crescents. So I guess I'll just check out Wilbraham Crescent because I'm at a loss. It's so obvious immediately to any conscious reader as opposed to an astute reader that the paper is upside down and that obviously it's 19 Wilbraham Crescent, which is also, by the way, where all of the action is taking place in this moment that he's telling us about this piece of paper that let's just say from the get go, we're getting the sense that this is not one of Christie's cleverest mysteries. It made me think back to Christie's very first book, Mysterious Affair at Styles, where we also get a letter that's reproduced. And what we're supposed to pick up from that letter is so clever and so difficult to observe that it is truly impressive when you get to the other side of it. Uh, Lord Edgeware dies as well, has, has another mm-hmm. example right. along those lines. And we are not in the same zone here with this book, unfortunately. No, and now we're about to be introduced to Detective Inspector Dick Hardcastle. He recognizes Colin Lamb, so he brings him immediately on board as a fake sergeant. Yeah, it refers to him as Sergeant Lamb throughout mm-hmm. a lot of these interviews. At the scene of the crime, we find out again, as we mentioned, there are multiple clocks. Miss Peb Marsh, despite her blindness, she obviously, she knows what's in the room because she has to feel everything. She knows those clocks are not supposed to be there. And they find that there's a business card on the man and he's well-dressed. He's respectable. He's around 60. His name on the business card is Mr. R.H. Curry, Metropolis and Provincial Insurance Company Limited. And then there's a London address. So seems very respectable and looks very respectable too. We're told that very often that this man has a respectable face and he does not seem to be a likely anonymous corpse to turn up in a murder case. Right. Except for the fact that as it turns out, all the tags have been cut from his clothing. That name, the Mr. Curry, is not a real person. That is not a real address. And then it's not a real company. Indeed. So very, very uh, mysterious. And so far, by the way, I'm in, you know? Yeah. 
So, D.I. Hardcastle and Sergeant Lamb go about interviewing the surrounding neighbors in the Crescent. And again, Colin Lamb has an ulterior motive here since he's just canvassing the Crescent to see if there are any spies lurking about. But none of the neighbors really seems to have particularly seen anything. And as we mentioned, there are a lot of them. So going slightly more in depth into who they are at this point, we have a crazy cat lady, Mm. Mrs. Hemming, who is by far the most entertaining, I think, of the neighbors. It's the most descriptive because we get all the descriptions of the ammonia smell. Yes, indeed. And in fact, I mean, I don't have much from this novel that I want to pull out and quote from, but the Mrs. Hemming sequence made me chuckle a couple of times. And yeah, when they first enter her house, we're told that they're assaulted by, quote, a pervading smell of cat that afflicted the nostrils of both men. And then what's really funny is that Inspector Hardcastle is allergic to cats. Christy writes... As usually happens on these occasions, all the cats immediately made for him. One jumped on his knee, another rubbed affectionately against his trousers. Detective Inspector Hardcastle, who was a brave man, set his lips and endured. And if you're wondering, by the way, how many cats there are, that number changes quite entertainingly. I think it's like 17, right? Well, at first, Mrs. Hemming makes reference to having 12 cats because she's talking about where they sleep. She says, five in my room, the other seven down here. Then one of her neighbors, Mrs. Ramsey, later on says she has 14 cats. And then when Colin Lamb is talking to his superior about it, he says that she has about 18 cats. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just say she has a lot of cats. And Diana Lodge, which is the name of her townhouse, right. quite humorously, uh, Diana Lodge is a bit smelly. It seems as though she is entirely uninterested in the murder as well. She's the only neighbor who doesn't really care because she only has eyes for her cats. And Colin very much suspects her of being a spy because he's like, oh, that's a really good cover, being a crazy cat lady. (laughs) Yeah. And again, we have the water houses and again, their brother and sister, their relationship's weird. You know, it's sort of the stereotypical henpecked kind of thing going on there, which we have seen before with brothers and sisters. I mean, going all the way back, actually, to that acidulated spinster, Caroline Shepard, and Mm -hmm. her brother, the good doctor in The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, and then also the dentist in One Two Buckle My Shoe, I remember, has a sister who is uh, a formidable presence. Let's just put it that way. So we have seen characters like that before. But yeah, moving right along from the Waterhouses, we then have the Ramses with no lighthouses, unfortunately. No tr- no imminent trips to the lighthouse. You know, Mrs. Ramsey is there at the end of a holiday period with uh, her two sons, Bill and Ted. And she is basically just white knuckling it until they go back to school. No, this is actually where this is one of the best things in the book is that Mrs. Ramsey says that she only has a few good days per year. And one is where her boys are coming back. And the other is when they're leaving. (laughs) Yes. It's one of those small moments in Christie that is so observant and bitingly so because I think that's kind of true. I mean, she obviously loves her children, but it's like she's really happy to see them and then that fades away and then she's really happy 
for them to leave. And then that fades away too. When you sort of then are like, Oh, I miss my kids though. And you feel guilty about not having wanted them around when they're gone. So it's at either end of that holiday. I mean, I think there are many parents who would agree that that is uh, an accurate assessment of the uh, trials and tribulations of parenthood. You know, making matters worse for her is the fact that her husband is away and he seems to be off abroad. He seems to be an engineer. It's perhaps a little mysterious exactly where he is. And maybe that's adding Possibly Sweden, I think, is what we're supposed to think. Yeah. So maybe that's adding to Mrs. Ramsey's stress. I don't know. We'll see. Then we have the Bland family, Mr. and Mrs. They are the ones who live behind the Pebmarsh house at 61 Wilbraham Crescent. So Colin Lamb is, of course, extremely interested to speak with them. And we get a, a fairly extended sequence, actually, with the Blands, where we find out that he's a builder of houses. He doesn't really seem to have been that good at his job, but they're doing very well. And we get a description of the relative opulence in which they live compared to their neighbors at Wilbraham Crescent. And we also get the information that uh, Mrs. Bland recently came into an inheritance, which is why they are living in such a rich fashion. And, you know, Mr. Bland was essentially able to retire and they're now living off this inheritance. I'm just going to point out, we'll get to this when we get to our clues, but I know that I read this novel before. I did not remember it whatsoever. I now realize why I didn't remember it whatsoever after having read it for a second time. But when I was reading through this, I underlined the section that involved that throwaway reference to an inheritance of Mrs. Bland's because inheritances are usually not insignificant in a Christie novel. So we shall see if I was an astute reader or not this time. Uh, who is our final neighbor who Hardcastle and Lamb visit, Catherine? Oh, the McNaughton's. They're not really that interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think Mr. McNaughton is a really good gardener. Yes. that's And he's very snooty about Mr. Bland's gardening skills or lack thereof. That's honestly all I could tell you. You know, we didn't even list this as a clue, but in a way, you could treat this extended sequence of neighbor interviews as a mega laundry list. And Christy, like perhaps the largest scale laundry list she's ever Mm -hmm. created. I know. And there are, you know, a few key items that are hidden within this laundry list that are significant. Right. So then we're going to um, Hardcastle and Lamb going to see one Mrs. Lawton. That would be Sheila Webb's aunt who raised her. Sheila Webb was the natural child, i.e. illegitimate child of her sister. That's the information we have about her for now. She lives with Mrs. Lawton and had up until recently lived in London. She lived with a bunch of like girlfriends, but the cost was so high. She moved back with her aunt. Like by this part of the story, we are aware that Mr. Lamb slash fake Sergeant Lamb has a massive crush on Sheila. So what does a spy Kemper with a massive crush do? Oh boy, Catherine. We're halfway through this book. I want to be clear, but a spy with a massive crush might go see an old family friend because as is heavily implied, he's actually not named Lamb. We have like a little bit of a guessing situation here, but might it be safe to say that his last name 
is potentially battle. This is so exciting, but yes, well, even more excitingly, who would be the detective that the son of retired superintendent battle might go to if he's looking to clear the name of his lady love? Yes, that would be one Hercule Poirot, who, when he does meet with Colin Lamb, says to him, and how is my good friend, your father? And Colin tells him, and then Poirot says a little later, I thought the good superintendent was going to write his memoirs. So that's a pretty big clue right there that, you know, we're talking about superintendent battle because he's really the only one of the major series detectives who was consistently referred to in that way. And then luckily, of course, thank God for John Curran, because he tells us that in G.C. Ramsey's Mistress of Mystery, Agatha Christie is quoted as confirming that Colin Lamb is, in fact, Superintendent Battle's son. Which is really the, funny because in the adaptation, which we'll get to later, he is made to be Colonel Race's son. He is. Well, Superintendent Battle, I believe, only appears in one Poirot, which is Cards on the Table. He obviously appears in a bunch of other books as well. But in the adaptation of that book in the Suchet series, Superintendent Battle was excised. Actually, Colonel Race was also excised from that adaptation of Cards on the Table, but Colonel Race was retained in the Suchet version of Death on the Nile, which had happened already. So perhaps that's why they went for Colonel Race rather than Superintendent Battle. But I found that curious as well. It's an interesting choice. Yeah, so it seems that uh, Colin Lamb is one of Superintendent Battle's children. You know, we were told in Toward Zero that he has five children. We already met one of them in that book, his youngest, his daughter, Sylvia. Apparently, Colin is uh, one of his sons. And he and Poirot are old acquaintances. And it's all a little sad, as it tends to be in these later books, because When Colin visits Poirot, George tells him that he thinks that Poirot gets a little depressed sometimes. He seems bored, a little disconsolate. And because of that, he has actually turned to um, a little light reading, hasn't he? Poirot, it seems, has become you and me, Kemper. (laughs) He seems to have become a hardcore mystery novel reader. He has a lot of opinions. He has a lot of opinions, and we can talk more about that, I think, in the rankings when we're talking about where this book falls uh, when it comes to series-long characters, because it's not great since there's barely any Poirot in here. And I found this extended sequence to be awkwardly inserted into the book, which is why it doesn't even really make sense to deal with it right now in our summary. But I think it's actually the sequence that most people think of or at least hardcore Christie fans think of when this book is referenced. Like, oh, right, The Clocks. That's the one where Poirot just starts monologuing about real murder cases and then real detective fiction and then fake detective fiction, which are very thinly veiled references to real detective fiction authors. And it's all interesting, but bizarre. He does reference his friend, Mrs. Oliver. Not very nicely, I should say. Definitely a sense of disparagement every time Ariadne Oliver's name comes up, which I, you know, I think is Christie's self-deprecation coming to the fore there since, you know, she knows that we know that Ariadne Oliver is the stand-in for her. 
<laughs> no, I think so too, but it's always a little bit heartbreaking to see Poirot be so mean about Ariadne Oliver. It's just like, no, leave Mrs. Oliver alone. Like, go talk about your other people. I'll say this. We dare I say, have another laundry list here because this listing out of novels and authors is quite long and quite extensive. And there may be one of those authors who turns out to be central to the solving of this mystery. We don't even really have to name that author right now because it's so random that it doesn't matter. And we'll just get to it when we get to it at the end of the novel. But perhaps there is something a little more significant going on here when when Poirot is just waxing eloquent about all these authors. But it's really, really strange the way that it's inserted here into the middle of the book. It feels suspiciously like padding. Yeah, it does. And also Poirot kind of immediately gets that this is about a girl, first of all. And secondly, that Colin is basically a puppy, right? Who's bringing Poirot a bone and wagging his tail. Indeed. It's all a little condescending, but Colin, good puppy that he is, and apparently his father's son has very carefully brought Poirot the transcripts of the interviews that he's done with the neighbors. And he leaves them for Poirot. And Poirot says, oh, actually, you should also go back again to the neighborhood. (laughs) <laughs> which at which point anyone reading this novel is like, no! <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we've already spent, like this book is already now at about the 200 page mark and we're just like, <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. So meanwhile, there's an inquest, of course, concerning that unidentified body. And we find out that the mystery man found in Miss Peb Marsh's house was drugged first, hence why there was no seeming struggle. He was slipped a Mickey Finn, as the doctor says, which was when I learned that Mickey, as in to slip someone a Mickey, uh, actually had a last name. I never knew that it was called a Mickey Finn. Mickey Finn was an actual bar owner in Chicago in the late 19th century, apparently, who used to drug and then rob his customers. At the inquest, a ditzy secretary colleague of Sheila Webb's, Miss Edna Brent, asks to speak with D.I. Hardcastle after the proceedings are over. But she's sort of put off and the sergeant there says that he's otherwise occupied. And she keeps saying that what she said didn't make sense. Right. And we have heard from a number of women at the inquest, specifically from Sheila Webb herself, Miss Martindale, and Miss Pep Marsh. Edna never specifies who she is, but we know that something one of these three women said at the inquest doesn't sit right with her. Right. So it's a, it's a favorite, it's a favorite antecedent clue. Yes, indeed. Well, and we all know where this is going as well, which is that Edna Brent is going to go to Wilbraham Crescent, where she is confronted by someone and found murdered in a phone booth, strangled with her own scarf. We, again, as conscious readers, not even astute readers, can see this one coming from a mile away. Absolutely. And so also during this, Mr. Lamb is off waiting at a Chinese restaurant for his hot date with Sheila. (laughs) And, you know, he has to wait for like a half hour. She does show up and they have their little date, but then he has to head off to Romania on spy business. We don't really find out that much about it. He comes back. 
he comes back again to Wilbraham Preston and again he takes Poirot's advice and he does a little looksies around the crescent. And he eventually notices that on the other side of that crescent, there's an apartment building. And in that apartment building, there's a little girl who is essentially acting out the plot of Rear Window. <laughs> there's like someone just saw Rear Window before writing this book. <laughs> I know. Yes, seriously. And so he goes into the building during the Porter's lunch hour and he basically figures out what the apartment is from what he could see on the street. And he meets one Geraldine Brown. Who's Geraldine Brown, Kemper? Well, Geraldine does have some shades of Josephine Leonides from Crooked House. That's all I'll say about that. But she, like Josephine, is bored. <laughs> Geraldine is bored and lonely. And again, rear window, she has a broken leg and some opera glasses. And she's been doing a lot of spying outside of her bedroom window. Her mother uh, is long dead, which she sort of weirdly, gleefully recounts. I know, it's really odd. Josephine. And her father <laughs> right. works all day. She has a Norwegian au pair who doesn't speak English very well. So she just keeps a journal monitoring the comings and goings of everyone across the street. She refers to it as train spotting, which is when I was like, come again? The heroine from my last hit is fading away and the suppositories have yet to melt. I never knew, honestly, that train spotting, the term way predated its sort of druggy allusions because when people were talking about train spotting in Geraldine's day, they were literally talking about train spotting where you would essentially devote a lot of time to some sort of trivial seeming activity such as observing trains. But I found that really amusing that she talks about train spotting. She, because she's been doing this train spotting, out her window can decisively say that a man never walked into 19 Wilbraham Crescent on the day that this unnamed body was found. But there was a new laundry service that delivered a mm. rather large load of laundry there a little bit before the time in question. When oh, all this the money snowflake was laundry, Kemper? Snowflake laundry, indeed. She's a good little spy, isn't she? She is. It might be a little convenient you know, her appearance at this point in the novel. Uh, it, it, it might strain credulity slightly, but hey, it certainly moves things forward. Right. And by the way, during the same period, a woman named uh, Marlena Rival has come forward naming the mysterious deceased man as her one-time husband, Harry Castleton, who she had been away from for a number of years. So she identifies him. This goes on for a little bit, but she backs this up eventually by noting a scar on the back of his head behind his ear. But unfortunately for her, the coroner could confirm that scar did not happen prior to their separation. It was recent. So like in the past five years. And then Marlena's killed in the tube. I mean... We said that we had, you know, the sequence with Edna where she's running around saying like, oh, I just don't understand why she said that. I just, I have to talk to a policeman about this. And we get almost the exact same sequence with Merlina where you're like, oh, she's about to get murdered. Okay. Okay. And then she's murdered. Like, yeah. It's, 
very obvious that she's going to get murdered because she too seems to, you know, be having second thoughts and just sort of misgivings. She doesn't seem to necessarily be such a bad sort. She's amoral or slightly unethical, but not a thoroughly vicious or malicious person. And yeah, it's just very clear before it happens that she too will be dispatched as the third victim as she is. Where is Poirot in all of this, you might say? Well, he's been nowhere at first. I mean, he talks about the fact that he's going to truly be an armchair detective in this case and just solve this without lifting a finger, which uh, is unwelcome news to, I think, most readers of this novel because we were hoping that it would be injected with significantly more Poirot than it is when he is Mm -hmm. introduced as late as he is, but it is not. But he does finally show up at the town in question, which I don't even know if we mentioned. I mean, we're not in London here, by the way. We're in Crodine, which is right. a town in Sussex mm-hmm. on the uh, the southeast coast in England. But Poirot comes down to Crodine once Colin Lamb is back from Eastern Europe. So he says that he doesn't know who the dead man really is. He doesn't exactly know why he's been killed or who he is, but he kind of does. He's sussed out most of it, and he definitely knows why Edna was killed. Right, yes. Which, to be fair to the little bit of cluing and I think active reading that can be done in the course of this book is, I think, how one gets to the murderer ultimately you kind of have to almost start with edna and then it's reverse uh, engineered yeah and then work your way back not that we're going to do that actually as we go through our clues but we'll talk about it when we get to the other side so let's get into some clues here Catherine, as we bridge on over into the world as it actually is so clue number one is the too many clues clue we've obviously mentioned this a million times before but there are too many clues here The clocks thing is weird. There's something weird going on there. Uh, Why are there so many clocks? And we don't really have to wonder about this. Poirot tells us up front it's covering a simple murder. He, the second Poirot comes into the story, he says this is a simple murder and it's being obfuscated. So the deduction is it's a misdirect. Right. Yeah. And we've seen this in so many previous novels, you know, most famously in Murder on the Orient Express. When you have too many clues, it's, you know, it it tends to be a smoke and mirrors effect Mm -hmm. that's masking something more simple. (laughs) On that note, getting to the more simple aspect of what's really happening here. Early on in the novel, uh, again, in that mega laundry list of an investigative sequence as we go from neighbor to neighbor, D.I. Hardcastle and Sergeant Lamb go door to door up and down the crescent. And when they get to the Blands... Mr. Bland just nonchalantly drops some info about an inheritance that his wife recently came into, as we mentioned. This is what he says specifically. We had a bit of a windfall a year ago. My wife came into some money from an uncle of hers. She hadn't seen him for 25 years. Quite a surprise it was. And as I mentioned, I was very proud of myself for underlining this because the inheritance will almost definitely turn out to be significant whenever it is mentioned in a Christie. Skip 15 seconds if you haven't yet read The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, but then also just please pause this episode and read The Murder of Roger Ackroyd (laughs) and then come back. (laughs) But uh, we had an example of a throwaway reference to at least 
money issues in the murder of Roger Ackroyd. It, it, I definitely thought of that same throwaway reference when um, I realized how significant this reference was in this novel. What's even more significant in this case, though, is the way that Mr. Bland describes the inheritance. Because the clear implication, which is why I quoted it, is that the only reason Mrs. Bland got this money was that she was the rich uncle's sole surviving relative. Like they weren't close. She hadn't seen him in years. She wouldn't have gotten the money if there were a ton of other relatives around. So even though it's never stated outright, we do have a clear implication that Mrs. Bland must not have any other relatives. And yet... Last on page later, clue number three, Mrs. Bland makes reference to, quote unquote, my sister who, quote unquote, lives here. Well, that seems awfully weird, doesn't it, Kemper? It does indeed. So I would just say that the deduction here is that this sister might be significant because her existence, it totally runs counter to the inheritance that the Blands claim she received. So who could this person be and why? Well... Within this same key section buried in this mega laundry list of a sequence in the novel, (laughs) Mrs. Bland is referred to as, quote, a sandy-haired woman. And Mm -hmm. to be even fairer, you know, Colin Lamb even says he's narrating this sequence. She, gosh, she really reminds me of someone, but I can't put my finger on who it is. So we're put on notice that Mrs. Bland looks like someone else who Colin Lamb has already met. And throughout the novel... Miss Martindale, over at the secretarial agency, is described many, many times as, quote, Sandy Cat, end quote. That is what the secretaries all call her. It's their (laughs) opposite of fond nickname for her. It's what they basically all call her behind her back. Our deduction here... Her first name is Catherine, which I am resentful of. (laughs) (laughs) I know another evil Catherine in a Christie. Not the first I know. time. I know. I know. Apparently, apparently Agatha did not like Catherine's. <laughs> so, you know, and this is clever and it really is buried in here, but these two sandy haired women must be actual sisters. Of course, it's, you know, odd now that we pointed out that Christie would bother to mention that they both have sandy colored hair. And that means that when Mrs. Bland collected that inheritance from this uncle, she must have done so under false pretenses somehow. And it also would seem to indicate that the Blands and Miss Martindale must be in on this together. So, you know, that is incredibly difficult to glean from that section because it really is so buried in there. But as we mentioned, the Edna business and Edna, you know, as our second victim is perhaps a little bit easier to parse. And it's how I definitely started to piece things together. So what about Edna, Catherine? This is the fifth clue. Edna goes on and on and on about how something, quote unquote, she said at the inquest couldn't be true. So there are three women, right, who gave evidence at the inquest. Miss um, Peb Marsh, whose house it was, Sheila Webb, who found the body, and Miss Martindale, of course, who sent Sheila there. And the deduction is that Miss Martindale is the least obvious of these three, or it feels like the one Christie does not want us to suspect. So, I mean, not to simplify this too drastically, but it's probably her. 
we do have two, I think, very clever supplemental clues to back that up. The first, our clue number six, is that Edna tries to go to where Sheila Webb lives to talk to her about whatever was bothering her at the inquest. And I think this one's actually really clever because when we do get to the other side of it, it's incredibly obvious what this means. Given that Edna wants to see Sheila outside of work and at Sheila's home, well, that can't mean that it's Sheila whose evidence didn't make sense because why would Edna want to be alone with her when she could talk to her surrounded by other people, first of all? And it wouldn't make any sense if it's Miss Petmarsh because Miss Petmarsh is not around the secretarial pool at the agency. It wouldn't matter. Why would she have to go to Sheila's house to have that conversation? There's only, in fact, one person who would require that Edna go outside of the workspace for her to discuss this evidence. And that, of course, is Miss Martindale. It's Sandy Cat herself. So it really has to be something about Miss Martindale's very brief evidence that she gave at the inquest as to the telephone call she received from Miss Pepmarsh asking for Sheila Webb services. There must be something off about what Miss Martindale was saying. And we have uh, one more supplemental clue to that effect. Yeah, and it's clever. It's brought up repeatedly, actually, in the novel. Kudos to Christy here. Edna is a complainer, and Edna broke her shoe. And we know that Edna broke her shoe at the beginning of the novel. She was wearing stilettos, and everybody else is kind of complaining that she just didn't wear more sensible shoes. Instead, she wore these stilettos and she complains to every single person who wants to listen to her that her heel broke off and we find out you know when they were going to lunch she couldn't go to lunch with them because she can't very well walk with one heel so if we sit down and think about the blocking here what that means is that Edna had to go back to the office she was in the office during that lunch hour period where Miss Martindale says she got that call. Or did she? Clearly she didn't. Skip ahead if you haven't read The Moving Finger, but it reminded me very much of the way that the maid in The Moving Finger, who was killed, remember, skewered and stuffed in a cupboard. Yes. She was killed for having witnessed the fact that no one came to the house where the main victim was murdered, which meant that the murderer probably lived in that house. So again, she was killed for the fact that she witnessed nothing. And we have the same Mm -hmm. thing here where Edna was killed for the fact that she knew that no call came in and that Miss Martindale was making up that phone. Yeah, she was killed for the fact that she didn't witness anything, which is what makes it really clever. And the fact that Christy never explicitly states that Edna went back to the office for lunch and that she was sitting there during the crucial time. But once we realized that she did, in fact, do that, we also realized we were given all the tools to make that very small leap. Mm-hmm. Right. She to, had no shoe. You know, having that would... She had no shoe. Where else would she have gone? Yeah. She had to go back there. Yeah. So it's it's very, very clever. I really think those two last clues are the best that we get in this novel. And, you know, at this point, we're, we're pretty close, I think, to figuring out what happened. Although I wonder if anyone can get there completely. And then we've got a whole bunch of spy stuff that we've got to untangle here. So what is happening here, Catherine? Mr. Bland, he had a previous wife. There was a Mrs. Bland number one. And the Mrs. Bland that we meet in this story is Mrs. Bland number two. And guess what her last name was? Could it be Martindale? Might be Martindale. Yeah, she's sisters with Sandy Cat. 
So it turns out that Mrs. Bland, numero uno, inherited a massive amount of money from that Canadian uncle. And when they were notified of this, they were like, well, why should we give up this massive amount of money? So they came up with a plot. And that was to pretend that Mrs. Bland, number one, was not dead. So Mrs. Bland, number two, was used in this scheme to pretend to be Mrs. Bland, number one. And that scheme was concocted by her husband and her sister. To give Christy some credit, she does note that the death of the first Mrs. Bland and the second marriage of Mr. Bland happened as a result of World War II because the first Mrs. Bland dies through enemy action in France. And then Hilda Martindale, Mrs. Bland number two, was in the NAAFI, which was a branch of the military that sold goods on military bases to servicemen and their families. So this is all marginally more believable given the fact that it happened during wartime so that then when they you know returned to England or at least to civilian life they were you know able to pull off this switcheroo that's how they managed to do it and cash in on the inheritance from mrs bland number one and the dead man's real name is quentin du Gusclin. Hmm. he's quebecois that's his name and he happened to be an old friend of mrs bland number one and unfortunately for him he thought that it would be fun to look her up when he came to england and if this is sounding familiar if you haven't read dead man's folly skip ahead a little bit but this is exactly the situation that we had in that book i mean it is lifted the only difference being that instead of the fake wife disappearing as a backpacker (laughs) from a country fate, we instead had the couple conspiring to murder the visitor. So this would be as if Etienne de Sousa were murdered, which, to be honest, I remember theorizing was probably the simpler way to fix that whole situation in Dead Man's Folly. So this time they went that route. And I get it. That is why they poisoned this poor man with chlorohydrate and then stabbed him when he was unconscious and smuggled him into Miss Pep Marsh's house in that big laundry basket that Geraldine Brown had seen. Because he obviously, if he had been allowed to meet the second Mrs. Blant, he would have, of course, have immediately realized that she was not who she was saying she was and the inheritance would have been lost. This is where it gets a little iffier. Miss Martindale set up Sheila because she'd inadvertently dropped her clock with her birth name on it, which is not Sheila, it's Rosemary. Rosemary for remembrance. She had dropped it at work, basically. She was taking it in to be repaired. And maybe you can explain this to me, Kemper, because I think maybe I missed this. I don't really understand how Miss Martindale knew that Sheila's birth mother was Miss Pembarsh. Well, Catherine, I think unfortunately that Miss Martindale stumbled into a setup that was even better than what she realized because we have yet another very hard to swallow coincidence as to familial relation at the end of this book, (laughs) I regret to say. Basically, it seems like Sheila Webb brought that rosemary clock into the office because she was having it repaired and Miss Martindale took it, right? She she just stole it because she knew that she was going to plant this body in Miss Pebmarsh's house. 
also unclear why she even chose Miss Pebmarsh's house. I mean, I suppose because she figured she was an easier mark than others due to the fact that she's blind. I don't know. That's never really stated, but perhaps that was why we know we don't really get an explanation as to why Miss Pebmarsh is, you know, the house that she landed on for placing the body. But because she was able to get a clock of Sheila Webb's, Sheila Webb then was the typist from among, you know, the pool at her agency who Miss Martindale chose to send into the lion's den, as it were, to discover the body. That's as far, it seems, as the plan went that Miss Martindale concocted as Mrs. Bland's sister. However, there is this further coincidence involving Miss Pebmarsh and Sheila Webb. You know, it's really hard because I want to be generous to Christy, but my gosh, this is not great. You know what? It turns out that Miss Pebmarsh is Sheila's mother, who is also a Soviet spy. Seems that Miss Pebmarsh was knocked up, not to put too fine a point on it, and unwilling to give up her career. So she gave the infant to her sister, who was Mrs. Lawton, who we did meet, and Mrs. Lawton did convey this information that Sheila Webb was the the natural child, i.e. illegitimate child of her sister. But of course, she didn't say who her sister was. Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way, this is, you know, this book is all about surprise sisters. <laughs> surprise, Miss Martindale is the sister of Mrs. Bland. And surprise, Miss Pebmarsh is the sister of Mrs. Lawton, i.e. the birth mother of <laughs> Sheila Webb. But it just seems to be a pure coincidence that Sheila well, no, Webb was also, sent. Well, to her right. House. And also, and also the Ramseys, who were the backyard neighbors, Mr. Ramsey, he was not off in Sweden. He was in Moscow because he defected. We have two you know, Soviet spies on the same block. Mm-hmm. And we have a daughter of a blind woman who also is a Soviet spy who happens to come across a body that they actually have nothing to do with. At all? Yeah, I mean, Miss Pebmarsh actually is innocent of anything having to do with the murder plot. As is Sheila. As is Sheila, but she is a Soviet spy. And as you mentioned, there's also a, a defector to the Soviet Union, you know, a couple of gardens down. In the Crescent. They're, they're, yeah. catty, they're catty corner. Yeah, catty corner, right. This means, of course, that Colin, unfortunately, has to turn in his lady love's actual birth mother, but he is an upstanding gent and he does what he has to do. By the way, the reason why Colin knows that Miss Pebmarsh is Sheila Webb's birth mother is that they have the same eyes. So we also have Corn, you know, another point. blue. Cornflower Blue. We have another point of resemblance between two women in this novel, Mm -hmm. cluing us into their relation. And it seems, you know, they're at a bit of a standoff here at the end when he's waiting for the authorities to come take her away. It seems that he's not going to tell Sheila Webb about the fact that he found her birth mother, but that they are going to continue having a relationship beyond the final page. And I'm happy to say we are now at the final page of this rather complicated mystery that doesn't necessarily amount to all that much. And I really don't often say that when reading a Christie. This this one feels disappointing when we get to the end. 
Yeah. It's also very long, Kemper. It's very long. And so my copy was almost 300 pages, which is extremely long. It's, Mine it's, was more than 300 pages. The Titus Christie's are much closer to 200 pages. So she always falls somewhere within the range or usually falls somewhere within the I range. Don't, I don't mind pages, a long but. mystery novel myself. I don't. But in this case, it is nonsensical. I'm really sorry. It's not a good book. No, it's not. This is not one of the good ones, alas. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Roses are red, violets are blue. Uh, Catherine, what are you doing? I'm writing a poem to honor my great love, Howie the Lizard, obviously. The same Howie with whom you challenge your brain on a regular basis, solving oodles of puzzles together as you play Best Fiends? Oh, of course. Everybody knows that, right? Well, then by all means, please continue. Roses are red, violets are blue. I defeat slugs with Howie, and so should you. Well... I don't think I could have said it any better myself. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Before we dive into our rankings, we should mention the one adaptation that exists for this novel, which of course figures in our beloved David Suchet series of Agatha Christie's Poirot. And this one was broadcast on the 26th of December, Boxing Day in 2011, as the final episode of the 12th season slash series. As Suchet himself notes in Poirot and Me, it actually aired no less than two and a half years after the film itself was shot. Uh, which, you know, shows how spaced out that show became in the later years. But this was right before they made the final decision to adapt almost every single Poirot in existence. So after this, we get the final season slash series, the 13th, in which they do the five that they hadn't done before. I get why they saved... They did the big four in that final gulp. A lot of the adaptations they left for the end in this series, they left for a reason. The Big Four is in there. Elephants Can Remember is in there. And dare I say, I think there's a reason why The Clocks is at the tail end of the second to last season. I don't think they were too excited to adapt this. And I think they do a fine job with it. But the story has the same flaws that it has in novel form. And it's fine. It's not my favorite. It's better in the Suchet version than it is on the page. Surprise, surprise. Miss Peb Marsh does not turn out to be Sheila Webb's birth mother in this version. They dispensed with that coinky dink at the end of the story. And, you know... (laughs) Geez, I wonder why. 
<laughs> the action had to be moved up to the 30s as per usual. Um, so the spy angle had more to do with England guarding against the rising threat of Germany than, you know, any sort of Cold War antics. And as we mentioned, Colin has explicitly made the son of Colonel Race as opposed to Superintendent Battle. But I think that sort of makes sense. And we should mention that Colin Race, <laughs> as he's named in this in this adaptation, is played by Tom Burke. And Suchet actually had something interesting to say about that in Poirot and Me. Here's the other excerpt that I just wanted to read out. We had another terrific cast led by Anna Massey in what would be her very last role in television as the elderly spinster Miss Pepmarsh. What was just as exciting for me, however, was that we also gathered together a group of excellent young actors, two of whom were the son and daughter of old colleagues in the profession. Tom Burke, who played the leading young man I had known since he was a baby, as I knew his father, David, and his mother, Anna Calder Marshall. David and I had worked together in Shakespeare's Measure for Measure at the Edinburgh Festival before Sheila and I had married. Jamie Winston, who played the young typist who discovers the first body, i.e. Sheila Webb, was the daughter of London-born actor Ray Winston, whom I had worked with in a BBC production of Shakespeare's Henry VIII. It gave me a tremendous sense of pride that the Poirot films were attracting so many of the next generation of actors. And, you know, Tom Burke, many of you will know as Cormoran Strike, in addition to many other roles. He has quite a successful career at this point, and I thought he was quite good. It's a perfectly enjoyable adaptation, I mean, of a not particularly enjoyable property. And like, I I mean, I want to make clear, as always, we have not been doing this for five years, Kemper, if we didn't love these, if we didn't love Agatha... But this is not up to the standard of most other Agathas. And so, like, I have a hard time being, like, not a little bit judgy about it. We were talking a little bit before we started recording, and I was saying to you how, for me, the most unfortunate thing about the way that this book is bad is that it's not gloriously bad, like Mm -hmm. some Christie's are, which again, I say with all the love of having put in five years of blood, sweat, and tears into my love of it. I know, every every week for five years we've been doing this. Because there are some Christie's that again are gloriously bad, where you can not hate read them, but you love to hate on the more laughable aspects of it. We don't like Death Comes at the End, but Death Comes at the End is kind of funny. Yeah, or some of the you know some of the more ludicrous thrillers or dare i say some of the books that we haven't yet gotten to which just go so far off the rails that you you know you have to marvel in some ways at the insanity and even some of those 50 thrillers we took a certain amount of again loving glee and just sort of like pointing up how wrong they went what's frustrating to me about this book is that it feels like a christie puzzle mystery and there are elements of those clues and the way that the puzzle mystery works that are functioning very much like a Christie puzzle mystery. But then there's all of the spy stuff and then just the absence of Poirot and the awkwardness of the plot and even the construction of the puzzle mystery that just makes it a slog of a read so that it feels like a subpar Christie without any of the joyous insanity. There's the whole thing where you're supposed to be rooting for Colin Lamb and you get one line which like, listen, I am an impeccably good reader. You and I both are. You see the superintendent mentioned, you know whose son he's supposed to be. But imagine if you were a casual reader. Just like imagine for a second, if you picked this book up and you were supposed to care about this rando guy and, you know, then he goes to Paro and like, we are so, so deep into the weeds here. 
that we know who he's supposed to be. But if you didn't, there's no indication as to why you should care about him. Honestly, Colin Lamb is the least of my problems with this book. <laughs> I I didn't really have much of a beef with him. I, well, I mean, I, he could, he gets a spy plot though, which is like for my for my money, it's one of the worst things about it. Yes, but it's not it's it, it's not him. I don't think it's it's him as a character that isn't working. I think it's just the spy stuff in general because there are certain books where she is actually able to knit together the spy or international intrigue story and the mystery. I love NRM. You're talking to somebody who loves NRM. Plus, a Cat Among the Pigeons, which is actually a very controversial take. I came out much more highly on Cat Among the Pigeons than I think a lot of Christie readers do. But I really enjoyed the way that she brought both of those elements together in an admittedly messy late book. But here, it's just a disaster. Because the spy stuff from the get-go with that piece of paper that just so obviously needs to be turned upside down, it feels dumb. And it feels tacked on. And it's never interesting. And nothing interesting happens with it. And the same can be said for the tacked-on nature of that extended monologue that Poirot goes on when he's talking about all those different writers. In and of itself, it's interesting. But I would get more out of it if it had been lifted out of the book and just sort of presented to me as a treatise by Hercule Poirot on writers. It doesn't fit in this book. No. no the one thing I can say in its favor, and we, I don't think we actually explain this at, at the end of our summary, but there is a reason, a very glancing reason why Poirot is going on and on about all these writers, which is that Miss Martindale gets the idea for all those clocks and all that smoke and mirrors from oh, an unpublished an unpublished manuscript of Gary uh-huh. Gregson's. And Gary Gregson is one of these fictional writers who Poirot mentions. And John Curran actually notes it in, in his book. You know, his books are all about Agatha Christie's exercise books, her notebooks that she used to plot her stories. Right. I reference them all, all the time. You know, it's, it's just a huge part of Christie scholarship. And it is pretty funny that the solution lies in Poirot happening to pick up two of those very exercise books that Christie herself used where Gary Gregson jotted down the plot that Miss Martindale as his secretary used. So it does tie in slightly, but not enough. And that's how everything in this feels. It's like there are all these loose ends and bits and pieces that yes, hang together, but so messily and so unsatisfactorily that you end the novel and you're just kind of like, it just you end it with a bad taste everything is a coincidence also edna's murder is with a crowd of people on the same block and they just don't notice which i mean that's a possibility but then that's just like kind of shoved to the side it doesn't really matter yeah and merlina's stabbed on the tube (laughs) it's just at that point i was literally rolling my eyes no, and murdered. right. And also, and then you have Colin who's ostensibly trying to solve this murder. And instead he's like, oh no, I would like to have the sex with this lady. I mean, that's basically his MO. He doesn't seem to really care about anything else. Uh, we should get into the rankings, I guess. Let's talk about plot mechanics. And as I always do, I want to start with John Curran's take because I think it lines up pretty well with ours. Yeah, I think it Here, does too. Here's what he has to say. 
The Clocks is an uneasy mix of spy story and domestic murder mystery with little in the way of clues to help the reader distinguish between the two. There are, as usual, clever ideas, the telephone call on the broken shoe, the adoption of a ready-made plot, the conversion of secrets to Braille. We didn't even talk about that. But the overall explanation is a disappointment. If the spy angle had been dropped and the inheritance plot elaborated, the result would have been a tighter book. And as she has done in many previous titles, Christy introduces an unsuspected and unnecessary relationship in the closing chapters. And this is how he sums (laughs) it up. The clocks, despite its promising opening, remains an inexplicably disappointing offering. Yeah. I think that's dead on. Yep. We love John Curran. And I think that that is exactly right. I also learned in our good friend Mark Aldridge's new book, Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, that apparently Christie herself was aware that this novel wasn't perfect because per Mark, her agent Edmund Cork told her publisher, Billy Collins, (laughs) game of telephone here, that soon after the novel was published, Christie, quote, would like to have improved, end quote the book. So she apparently even knew that it could have used some improvement. And, you know, this is where I, I did say that it does have a good opening. I mean, it's it's reminiscent in a good way of the Seven Dials mystery, which mm. also has a dead body sure. showing yeah. up in, in a bedroom with a mm-hmm. bunch of alarm clocks. That's intriguing. And we should also note that this exact setup was actually used nearly 15 years earlier in a short story competition where Christie wrote the exact same opening. The entrance to the competition were invited to write their own endings. And John Curran actually talks about this a little bit as well. And I'll just quote him again, because this is the only sort of fun fact (laughs) that I have about this book. He says, in late 1949, Agatha Christie set a competition for which she wrote the opening of a short story that competitors were asked to complete. It concerned a typist, Nancy, arriving at a house and letting herself into the front room. There she finds a collection of clocks, a dead man and a blind woman. The main difference between the two is that the clocks in the short story all show different and wrong times, whereas the clocks of the novel all show the same, but equally wrong time. Unsurprisingly, the character names are also different, as is the street address, but the similarities are striking. The description of the clocks is identical, and the rosemary clock is specifically mentioned. The telephone call making the appointment is a mystery, and the blind woman it transpires is Nancy's mother. Overall, the explanation of the presence of the clocks is more convincing in the prize-winning solution than in the novel. And it just, it feels like this opening and intriguing setup was one that she just couldn't stop thinking about, so she had to use it, but she really throws it away because it's so unsatisfying that the answer is, oh yeah, that was just a fake setup from a fake manuscript that one of the three murderers in this book used. Well, I mean, it's also it's also that really rarely do we have Poirot involved in this kind of spy BS. I have no clue why she thought that was a good idea. Yeah. It's handled a little better in Cat Among the Pigeons. Sure, sure. Because he doesn't have to get as involved in it. I mean, here it's problematic because he's interacting mainly with Colin, who's the one Mm -hmm. who's also driving the spy nonsense. In Cat Among the Pigeons, he's mainly and delightfully interacting with a teenage girl, (laughs) you know? No, Um, and I mean, and I think, and like, I think we both agree that Cat Among the Pigeons is very enjoyable. Yeah, but this one just really doesn't work. And the only other aspect of plot mechanics that I I wanted to point out before we rank it is that there's this weird quasi-clue that I refused to include on our list of clues because it's so annoying that involves this real-life village that's called Curry Rival. 
And oh, these yeah, are two, the, the, the last names, the last name. So these are two, two of the fake names that the murderers think up, right? The last name of the first victim is Mr. Curry. And then Merlina rival, you know, she's hired to pretend to be the wife of this victim. She of course was not at all. And her not really being okay with all this and starting to ask questions and dig into it is why she was killed. That's why she becomes the third victim. And her name, Merlina rival was also made up. And the idea is that the murderers sort of used both of those words as word association since they go together, since Curry Rival is the name of a town. It's apparently actually spelled R-I-V-E-L, but I guess it's pronounced the same way. I'm sure if it's not, someone will let us know. <laughs> yet, yet another proper noun from the UK that I will be mispronouncing. The only reason I, I wanted to mention it is that it reminded me of a little clue that we got along the same lines in Murder on the Orient Express as to the store Debenham and Freebody. I won't say any more because I would never want to spoil Murder <laughs> on the Orient Express. <laughs> But, um, and that's exactly what I mean uh, when I talk about how frustrating this book is because it's a bad version of a fun little clue that she threw into a superlatively wonderful book. And it makes me think of Murder on the Orient Express. And I'm like, I can see the connection between Murder on the Orient Express and this book, but this book is the bad version of that. And it's the bad version of so many Christieisms and Christie tropes. And I, I hate saying that, but that's you know what I kept on thinking as I was reading the book. I just like didn't understand why I needed 300 pages of nothing. 300 pages to be told that it was an inheritance plot that was exactly the same as the inheritance plot that you read a couple of books back. Correct. The only thing I'll say about plot credibility as well is that the ridiculous coincidence at the end with Miss Pep Marsh, which, you know, John Curran points out <laughs> is another one of these unnecessary things, is definitely a huge deduction here, I think, in, in terms of plot credibility. We talk about the rushed or tacked on second and third murders in these books, but not only were these rushed and tacked on, but they again felt so obvious and so telegraphed oh in a way gosh. that uh, they usually don't, that they were shockingly bad particularly bad in this yeah, book I mean, and edna, felt edna, unbelievable edna being like oh can i talk to the detective inspector no the detective inspector is busy oh i will just go to the scene of the crime <laughs> and then her body is found strangled in a phone booth yeah, yeah not great we're coming down fairly low on both plot mechanics and plot credibility. I think you were saying, Catherine, you'd like to go lower on credibility, which makes yeah, sense to me. I would. Because we do have at least a more or less functional puzzle mystery. I think you would have to be supernaturally astute reader to get all the way there. But I suppose all of the tools are given to you more or less in clue form as we laid them out in the book. So there's something to be said for that. So I think we're coming out on certainly below 10 out of 20 for plotting here, a five for plot mechanics and a four for plot credibility. Sounds good to me. Yeah, I think that sounds generous, honestly. Let's hold it there for now. And then the series-long character category, unfortunately, is also going to be extremely low. And we've already talked a lot about this, but there's very little Poirot. He's not used well. Yes, he's talking about being an armchair detective and not getting involved, but the book needed him. <laughs> you know, like the book needed him and he was yeah. not there for the book. It felt like Christy just didn't really want to deal with him. It did feel like that because where he does show up, it's like, okay, now I have to put him in here at this moment. I'm like, okay. 
okay, fine, I'll yeah. do it. Yeah, we get some very, very few good Poirot moments. I appreciated the line when he's talking about using his intellect to solve petty little mysteries that come his way when he's I mean, telling I, Colin I, Lamb I, how he's I bored. bad for him. He seemed tragic in it in some way. Oh, he definitely does. I mean, the line that he says, which I found amusing, but also somewhat poignant is, one should not need to use a rapier to cut the string of a parcel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that there is so much latent sadness in him in this book that I would have liked to have seen explored. Yes. Does that make sense, Kemper? Absolutely. I think it could have been explored. And I think it's also why the adaptation does better than the book, because they were all about exploring that darker aspect of Poirot's life and his loneliness in those seasons. So in that way, the book actually is a good match for later Poirot. And they do do some of that work there. And Suchet is very good at it, but the book doesn't really do that work. No. And it's a missed opportunity. The other thing that I just have to point out as the Christy pedant that I am is that we have a couple of troubling points in terms of continuity in this book, which also irked me. We get two references to a Mr. Enderby who Poirot says is an old lawyer friend of mine. And bear me out, but I think this might be the third name for the same character that Christy has used now in three different books because we first saw a Mr. Entwistle and after the funeral, you know, he was an old lawyer and he was swiftly followed by Mr. Endicott in Hickory Dickory Dock, who clearly seemed to be Mr. Entwistle from after the funeral and Christy just kind of bungled the names. Then to make matters more confusing, the name of the estate in after the funeral was Enderby Hall. So perhaps she got confused with that and that's why she called him Mr. Enderby, but he seems to be this same old lawyer friend from those other two novels with a slightly different E name. There was, of course, also another character named Enderby in the Sitterford mystery from decades earlier, but he was young and a journalist, so he was nothing like this character. It's just very confusing and irritating. So there's that. Then when Inspector Hardcastle says that when he mentioned Poirot's name to the chief constable, that the constable says that he remembers him quite well, that girl guide murder case. Miss Marple? You thought, is that, were you thinking the same, were you thinking what I thought? Poirot was not in the body in the library? Yes. Yes. I was thinking that, and that I can't, I I don't know exactly where I read this, but I think somewhere I saw it suggested that this is actually a reference to Dead Man's Folly, but they're not girl guides in that book. They're just backpackers. Correct. No, I thought that it was a reference to body in the library. That was a mistake. Yeah, I think it might be. And then most irritating, I think, to me is that there's a throwaway reference to a Miss Bolstrode who lives next door to Geraldine Brown. But that is almost certainly not the headmistress of Meadowbank from Cat and the Pigeons. It's just like, just pick another name. It's so confusing and weird. It just, this book feels sloppy. Yeah, it feels really sloppy. And Christy never feels sloppy. No, not ever. No, there's something just off about this book the whole time. So, yeah, I mean, where did you come down on Poirot and series long characters? I would come down pretty low. I came down very low. I mean, I would do anywhere between a two and a four. I think a four is too high, probably a three. So where do you fall for series long character? I love Poirot, Kemper. It's really hard for me to rank him low. Let me try to help you. 
you're not ranking Poirot low. You're ranking Christie's depiction of your beloved Poirot, perhaps a little lower because it was not everything that you wanted and that he deserves. I think that, and I hate to say this because I don't like to give you the final say, but I think I have to give it to you because I can't do poorly by my beloved Poirot. <laughs> I think this says more about our love of Poirot when we rank this category as low as we are going to. And if I am the final word, I'm going to give it a three, Aww, which is low. It's just really hard. <laughs> The only other point I'll make before we transition into book-specific characters is that apparently in Christie's notebooks, at one point she was toying around with Miss Martindale being the secretary, not to Gary Gregson, but to, oh yes, Ariadne Oliver. It would have been much more fun if that had been an Ariadne well, Oliver idea. Ariadne Oliver is mentioned multiple times in the book. Here's the thing. If all of the spy stuff was removed... And you made a lot out of Miss Martindale as a character, and you brought out the Blands and actually made them somewhat interesting characters that stood out a little bit more. I understand that part of, you know, the obfuscation is burying them, but it's, at, you know, at the expense of the mystery. If you did that, and then you made Miss Martindale having been the former secretary to Ariadne Oliver, so Ariadne Oliver had to come in as a character in this. It would be much her- better. A manuscript that she just, you know, never wanted to get published because she decided that it was trash. That the murder was based on that. It would have been like instantly a better book. Like you obviously couldn't have her come in until the end or close to the end because she would immediately be able to tell you what was going on here. But still, like what a fun cameo for her at the end. And then you would at least be able to have Poirot talking about Ariadne Oliver and you could have, it's just, there could have been so much fun had with that. Like there is, there is a better version of this mystery. Well, here's the thing. There's an easily better version of this. Yeah. That's the big problem. So like when we're talking about book specific characters, I don't think any of them are very good. I don't often quote John Kern as to character, but I think he has a really good summation of the issue there as well. He says, one of the problems with the book, though, is that there are too many neighbors and that they are not clearly enough delineated to fix them in the mind, while the lengthy interviews with them offer little in the way of information, either for the police or the reader. Truth, John Kern. For sure. I mean, Mrs. Hemming is clearly the most notable one, but she as a personality is not notable. It's that she has 17, 18, some variety of under 20 cats. And she's completely beside the point. And Colin is a fine narrator, but she's written more engaging and interesting male narrators before, who we've talked a lot about. I didn't particularly love him. I chuckled at this description of Merlina Rival. Christy wrote, and this is from Colin's point of view, about 50, he would judge, but from a long way away, quite a long way, she might have looked 30. (laughs) I noticed that too. What did you suggest? I think slightly higher, but only slightly than what we put down for Poirot. So I would say a four. Yeah, I think we're good there. And setting in tone is not good either. It almost seems like the splits between the narrative perspectives, they were different books that were then pieced together. 
It's funny, we talked about this a little bit with um, Sarah Pierce, actually, in, in that interview with her that we did recently. And we were talking about perspective and how using a first-person perspective is tricky in a mystery because obviously then that person needs to be the eyes and ears of everything. And they might not be certain places where they need to be, but it's impressive when you can figure that out. And if you can't, then you generally write something all in the third person. And that's fine too, because then that's a consistent perspective for the book. But this piecemeal thing of switching from third person when you need to, to, to first person, you know, to first person, there's a reason for it in ABC murders, a very good reason. And I still didn't even like it there. And then she really doesn't do it that often. But then in these two recent books, The Pale Horse, which works for a lot of other different reasons. So it's fine. It's a quibble with that book. But in this one, there's so little else that's working that the structure really becomes problematic. I agree. It feels convenient. It feels just stitched together awkwardly and it doesn't work. I've never wanted to keep reading a Christie less. Wow. Them's fighting words. I don't necessarily completely agree with you because I think there are a couple of Christie's I can think of that I wanted to read less as I was reading them. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, (laughs) no, no. I mean, I I agree with you too. I mean, that's like a several, I'll do a take backsies. I understand what you're saying. It's just not one of her best. And it was not a great read. It wasn't a breezy read either. I, I actually, it took me many sittings to read this book? I read it in one because I just made myself do it. Because otherwise, my fear was I was going to put it down and I was not going to put it back up again. You did the equivalent of like holding your nose and just shoving something down your throat. And I did the like picking at it and then leaving and then picking at it and leaving. And yeah, either ends of the same reaction. We mentioned the Rosemary for Remembrance thing. And I just found myself saying like, oh my God, can we stop talking about how Rosemary's for Remembrance? I still haven't gotten over all those references in Sparkling Cyanide. And it happened three times. Mm -hmm. It's not always like, I get it. Rosemary's for Remembrance. (laughs) Yep. The descriptions are not all that great either. There is some um, element at one point where it's mentioned that Colin's going to London. And... I was like, well, wait, where are we? <laughs> I. It's so funny. I was just about to say the same thing. Like, I wasn't even very clear on where we were for the first half of the novel. And I think I had the same thought where I was like, wait, aren't we in London? We're I gone? know. Yeah. Where are we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, some random town in Sussex? Okay, sure. Yeah. No, there's no real sense of place. And again, for all of the talk about the layouts of those plots on Wilbraham Crescent, I just was not all that fascinated by Wilbraham Crescent. Yeah, it almost seems like she was distracted writing. Does that make sense? Yeah, or maybe the fact that this setup was one that she had written 15 years earlier for a short story competition and had to like get out of her system. Maybe that was the mindset with which she went into this one. And she just said, you know what, I, I, I just need to get this off my chest, this whole clocks thing, so I can move on. I don't know. It just, it, I don't feel the same joy 
or zest in the characters or the plotting that you get in the best Christie's where you, I think it's Sophie Hanna who has talked about that a number of times, you know, in, in some of these Christie's, you just get the sense that God, she is having the best time writing this thing. Mm-hmm. And isn't this such an amazing ride? And like, what a, what a joy and a privilege to be able to go along on this ride with her. And this just, it feels like I felt like I was slogging through it as a reader and it felt to me like she was slogging through it as well. Maybe yeah. she wasn't. That could be incorrect, but that's how it felt. Where where did you land on setting a tone? I think this is definitely going to be one of the lower ones that we've done in a while. You know, this is certainly not deserving of a seven or an eight. I don't really think that it's abysmal either, because again, it is a recognizable Christie, and we do get some enjoyment out of it, even if disappointment might be the major impression that we're left with. It's not the only emotion that I think this book induces as we're reading it. Uh, the, the only thing before we rank it that I do think we should mention to give this book its due is all of those writers who Christy mentions, because that actually, even though it's awkwardly placed in the book, is I think one of the most interesting aspects of mm-hmm. the clocks. You know, it has this kind of meta element of Poirot talking about writers. And it's very obvious that his opinions on those writers are Christie's opinions on those writers. Correct. And I did just think it was interesting to note that she, you know, starts off on that monologue with real detective novels. And they're all ones that we know from uh, her writings, particularly her autobiography. Yeah, I mean, or- she mentions like John Dixon Carr, right? And... Yeah. Well, but first she mentions these three novels that um, we know were very important to her. The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. It's actually an American detective story from the late 19th century. She mentions that in her autobiography as an influence. The Adventures of Arsène Lupin by Maurice LeBlanc. Uh, you can you know, check that out on Netflix, folks. Check that out on Netflix with Omar Sy, right? That's yeah. uh, a hot series. And a lot of people have pointed out the fact that Poirot himself may have some antecedents in that series. And For then Lupin? The Mystery of the Yellow Room yeah. by Gaston LaRue, which we referenced when we covered The Murder on the Links. And we know right. it was a direct inspiration for that novel. And it's another one she credits as just having influenced her generally. So that's interesting that we're getting those three books referenced. And then Poirot gets to the fake stuff which is where things are also, I think, pretty interesting because Ariadne Oliver gets that, you know, somewhat disparaging mention. Then Mr. Cyril Quain, who Colin describes as deadly dull, and Poirot says he's all about the alibi, the railway timetable, the bus routes, the plans of the cross-country roads. That's obviously supposed to be Freeman Wills Crofts. He's one right. of the, the humdrum school. We've talked about him. Then we have Gary Gregson, and that's kind of the significant reference dropped into this laundry list. And he doesn't really seem to have a real world antecedent since he's there for purposes of this mystery. And then we get Florence Elks. And John Curran actually says that Florence Elks is a little difficult to identify, but he thinks it might be this writer, Margaret Millar, who Christie admired. And um, she was a Canadian who sent most of her novels in the U.S. She had order, method, and wit, but as Curran says, not the abundance of drink to which Poirot refers. And then he actually also disparages the quote-unquote tough school, which I took to mean noir. Of course, that's what, I mean, boys in the back room. Yeah. And that was interesting too, because, you know, Poirot says, violence for violence sake? Since when has that been interesting? Bah, you might as well read a medical textbook. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I mean, because at that point, Christy would have read all those like Bunny Wilson kind of essays about noir versus the women of golden age crime. Right? Because this is like well into the 60s. Yep. I mean, she would have read those. She would have known what was being said. So yeah, it's a reference to the boys in the back room. It's like she's getting a little bit of her own back. And I really liked that. No, I like it. I like it too, a lot. I don't like the book, but I like that. I like this sort of dissection. And then he goes on from there to um, talk about Louisa O'Malley, who is probably Elizabeth Daly, who's uh, another mystery writer that I've actually really enjoyed a lot. And uh, then, of course, he saves the best for last, which is The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. When he calls him Master, Colin mistakes the reference as being to Holmes himself. So Faro (laughs) clarifies he means Doyle. And I actually appreciated what he said about that as well. He said, um, these tales of Sherlock Holmes are in reality far-fetched, full of fallacies and most artificially contrived. But the art of the writing, ah, that is entirely different. The pleasure of the language, the creation above all of that magnificent character, Dr. Watson, ah, that was indeed a triumph. And then from there, he gets all nostalgic and wistful for Hastings, who it seems he hasn't talked to in years. Okay, this is the single most upsetting thing about setting and tone in this book is that we find out that Hastings has not bothered to be in contact with Poro in years. Well, you know, different times, maybe it was difficult to uh, communicate. No. It's not like they could shoot each other an email or a text. He could have picked up a phone <laughs> and he could have made a transatlantic call. And I do not forgive Hastings giving up on our beloved Poro. Well, you know, we'll get back to that when we get to Curtain. Don't make me have to like go cry in a corner. <laughs> you're like, don't, you're like, I'm feeling emotionally fragile already. Don't bring up Curtain. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last reference is John Dixon Carr or Carter Dixon. And yeah. Colin basically like escapes before he can get any further. He's like, ah, yeah, yeah, got it. I got to run. We're and Faro mentions him again later on. And he talks about how he has a penchant for locked room mysteries. But it's fun seeing this. And it reminded me of what Christy did in Partners in Crime, which mm-hmm. we covered so oh, which was delightful. You know, granularly. <laughs> And love so, but I mean, that's so spunky and fun, right? I know. I know. And we're coming out at like a six or something here. Yeah. Yeah. I think a six is probably being kind. We could probably go to a five, but if you're okay with a six, I can do a six. I think that's okay. The only other note I want to make is that there was a word that I did not um, know the meaning of. And the word was bump, B-U-M-F. And I circled it because I was like, what does that mean? Is that one of these Britishisms that has some sort of relation to a French word that I just don't know of because it's not, you know, in the American lexicon? Do you know what that's short for? I could think of a lot of dirty things, but that's probably not where no, I'm supposed you, to be going. You would, you would be right. This is It's an extremely... I find charming Britishism for useless slash tedious paperwork. It's a shortened form of bum fodder. As in toilet paper. Oh, it's kind of where I was going to go with that. I'm like officially going to use that word all the time now. Bum. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So six for setting and tone. And then stuck in his time will be really fast because I don't think we have any deductions for depictions that may be stuck in our time. There was a reference to, quote, Orientalia in a bookstore. I never heard that word before. 
Mm, but no. I and Geraldine Brown uh, had some interesting opinions about certain things. But hey, that's on Geraldine. Oh, Geraldine. Um, Geraldine had some interesting opinions about the Scandinavians and about female police women. <laughs> yes, she did also have those opinions. But um, that's Geraldine. So I'm comfortable with zero deductions if you are. Yes. Okay. So that brings us to our tallying up of the clocks. We have five plus four plus three plus four plus six minus zero for a grand total of 22 points, putting the clocks not in a tie. (laughs) This might be like the first time in months we haven't had a tie. Right. Putting the clocks very near the bottom of our rankings, but not quite at the bottom. It is in 46th place out of 54 novels. So I'm just going to read out our bottom 10 novels Mm -hmm. now from 45th to 54th place. The Mystery of the Blue Train, The Clocks, Why Didn't They Ask Evans, The Seven Dials Mystery, Destination Unknown, Death Comes as the End, They Came to Baghdad, Hickory Dickory Dock, The Big Four, and The Secret of Chimneys. I'm still not sure The Secret of Chimneys should be dead last. (laughs) By the way, if we're going to reread The Secret of Chimneys, we're going to have to reread The Big Four, too, because I have a lot of fondness now for The Big Four. You're a weirdo, Um, (laughs) but that bottom ranking does not seem wrong to me. Does it seem wrong to you? No, it doesn't. I mean, right above that, too, by the way, we have the murder on the links. And I think the fact that our bottom Poirots are Hickory Dickory Dock and the Big Four makes a lot of sense. And then the next Poirot after that is the clocks right underneath the mystery of the blue train and the murder on the links. You know, we we might switch things around a little bit by the time our rankings are totally done. But that generally feels right to me when it comes to the Poirot novels. Because this is a really flawed Poirot. So it should be around the mystery of the blue train and the murder on the links, which are two of my not so favorite Poirots. But it's nowhere near as utterly disastrous quiet reminder that there's a ghost in one of those (laughs) like an actual tangentially only tangentially yes but let me reiterate there's a ghost in one of those (laughs) but i think that those are all extremely problematic poirot mysteries that are slightly better than those absolute bottom two poirots but still very very bad when it comes to Poirot mystery. So it makes sense to me that they're kind of lumped together right I mean, now. I think that, almost like, at the like, I, mean, I, I always want to say this when we rank a Christie really low. You know, we think still more highly of Christie than we do of most writers in general. And so I don't want people to get upset about this. Um, I think that it's important to recognize that we're deliberately trying to do this in context. And yeah, this just is not one that should be up top. Agreed. Well, that is the clocks. For our next episode, we are going to be covering one of those earlier Poirot short stories. So perhaps a happier time with our dear Belgian detective in our next episode. We are actually covering the Plymouth Express, which 
is the precursor to the mystery of the blue train, in fact. So I suppose maybe it's fate that uh, (laughs) we mentioned that book uh, at the end of this episode. There is a separate Suchet adaptation for this short story. So this is one that they decided to adapt on its own, which is why we're deciding to cover it on its own. Because we, of course, always want to talk about that beloved series. Of course, and also Kemper, so people can get maybe a head start. Do you think maybe we are covering somebody who you have a great deal of affection for for our next novel? Well, it's even better than that, Catherine. I am elated to report that our next two novels, back to back, will be Miss Marple novels. Mm, yeah, like, and also Miss Marple gets a vacay. I think that we can all get excited about that, given that most of us have been trapped in our homes for a long time. It's true. Miss Marple goes abroad in the first of these novels, The Caribbean Mystery. And then she also has a little bit of a domestic holiday in the second of those novels, which would be at Bertram's Hotel. So this really is the only time in the oeuvre when we get two Miss Marple novels in succession. So uh, this is just a huge, huge event for me. And I, I hope you'll all understand when I pepper these episodes with Let's all comfort Kemper about this because this is like really his happy place. And it's been quite a trying year. So I would just like to really make my beloved co-host happy. I'm going to juice this for all it's got and just wring (laughs) as much joy out of these two books as I possibly can. And I suspect that's going to be a lot of joy. I think so, too. So, yeah, listeners, please give Kemper all the happy feedback that he wants. So we are very excited for those two marbles coming up. If you would like to hear more thoughts from us, we would love to have you over on our Patreon site. We are at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. We just recently dropped an episode on The Unexpected Guest, a Christie original play. So a ton of bonus content over on that site if you're interested. And you can always email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame or you can find Catherine individually at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha and our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. Please take a moment to rate and review us if you haven't already done so. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.